Well, hey friends, welcome to Evangel Church Online, a safe place for everyone to explore faith in Jesus, receive his love, and look more and more like him each day. We're continuing our series in Ephesians, and today we're talking about the one of the most transformational elements of the Christian faith. Bible college, I was part of a program called Omega and I was an intern for the program. Um, I had a team around me that we uh, did life through the year with and then went overseas on a missions trip with. Um, and one of the components of the Omega program as an intern was something that we did weekly called prayer and fasting. Uh, we would take one lunch out of the week and pray as a leadership team, uh, take some time to, to fast and to be together and be in the presence of Jesus. And often the directors would share a little bit of a devotional that would come, uh, that they would kind of share, that they would guide us in uh, where we were kind of praying into during the week. And so one of those prayer and fast days, one of the directors was sharing. And in their devotional, um, they said that they shared that we need to let God love us. And at first I heard that statement, I was like, what? No way. Like I, I kind of bulked at that statement. Like we need to let God love us. Isn't that so inherently selfish? You know, like God is the one who's worthy of all of our praise, our adoration, our worship, our lives, our whole life. And yet we need to let God love us. That just seems like so strange. Uh, it sounds a little bit twisted. But how often are we resistant to God's love? You know, if we really think about it, when we sin, when we're maybe feeling tired or upset at God, uh, we often will resist his love in our lives, or at least maybe I do. I can become that like kind of petulant child that doesn't let God what, do what he does best, or I kind of like don't give him an opportunity to, uh, to show his love for me. I don't let him do what he does best, which is to be my heavenly father who loves me regardless of my current circumstance. And you know what that does? When I, when I kind of push God away, when I am... Uh, resistant to receiving his love, it simply makes me less loving to those around me too. You know, where I'm all of a sudden not just resisting God's love for me, but I begin to resist others as well. And it becomes this, this challenging thing that kind of just snowballs into uh, a resistance of everything in my life. Have you ever been there? Where you turn inward as a means of self-preservation when life gets hard, uh, when we mess up, when we're hurting, and yet in those moments, God wants to meet us and he wants to reveal his love for us once again. You know, our vision statement here at Evangel, uh, which you heard at the beginning of this video, is that we exist to be a safe place for everyone to explore faith in Jesus, to receive his love, and to look more and more like him each day. Well, back uh, when the staff and board were kind of prayerfully formulating the statement, I wasn't here yet, but this is a story that has been told to me. They had a different word in place of receive. Instead of receive God's love, the word was encounter. But as the board and staff prayed about it, they realized that it's not enough to just encounter God's love. Because we can do that and then walk away. We can do that and leave uh, unchanged in the long term. But to receive his love 
means that we begin the process of transformation, means it changes our whole lives to look more and more like him each day because we are renewed by that love. And I think this is the prayer that Paul has for the Ephesian church that we're going to be looking at today, that they would know how deep the Father's love is for us and how that is the thing that transforms us. And I think that this prayer echoes over thousands and thousands of years to be a prayer for us today too, as his church, uh, as, as Jesus's church. And so if you take notes, even if you're online uh, and you want kind of a guiding word uh, for this message, write this down. It says, encountering God's love impacts us for a moment, but receiving God's love transforms us for a lifetime. So we're going to be jumping into Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19 today. Um, it's going to be Paul's prayer for the church, prayer for us as his body as well. Um, and so as you find it, whether on a Bible app or in your real Bible, uh, we're just going to quickly pray. Well, God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for that sacrificial, self-giving, uh, transformative love that you show to your people. That while we were still sinners, that you died for us, that you showed your love for us, even when we were against you. And so God, we thank you for that. I pray this wouldn't just be a moment of intellectual acrobatics, but it would be a moment of, of meeting with you, of experiencing your love again, and knowing the transformation that comes as a result. God, we love you, and we thank you, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. We're going to read from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell permanently in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, we're going to pack this passage verse by verse. They kind of cascade uh, into each other where they kind of are all interconnected um, and they build on each other as we read through it. And so we're just going to kind of go through them chunk by chunk. Because um, the first verses that we look at have to do with our identity, that God is shown to be our heavenly father, and that we are part of the family of God, or his family. That we all have our names, our identity given to us from God. And this identity is that we are his children. That we can come to him in the same way that a child would to a parent. But we first need to understand kind of what Paul means at the very start of this when he says, for this reason. Because um, this actually connects to Ephesians 3 verse 1, where Paul uses the same term. And so he's kind of connecting two ideas here. Because in the beginning of Ephesians 3, Paul is marveling at the grace of God to sort of widen the boundaries of inclusion to be for both Jew and Gentile. He marvels at the leveling of the playing field for all those who come to him by tearing down the dividing wall between God and his people so that we can all be close to him once again, close to that holy God, even as broken, sinful people. And so after that, he kind of takes like a brief rabbit trail, as Paul very often does. Um, and talks about something else and then returns to his response to this incredible uh, display of God's grace in our passage that we find now. So in 14 to 15, it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. Well, Paul is so overwhelmed by God's love to include all of us in his redemptive plan 
that he kind of bows to his knees. It seems almost like this um, like unplanned posture. Now, this is not a typical posture in the ancient world. Specifically for Jewish people, they would typically pray standing up with their arms outstretched and kind of facing heaven. But this love is so profound to Paul that it demands a different response from him, one of literally prostrating himself to the ground. And this posture is one of humility, solemnity, of adoration. It's a posture of gratitude, actually, to God for what he did for Paul by still including him, even though he was persecuting Jesus himself, as we read in Acts. And so Paul intimately and deeply knew that love and grace because he was like fully against uh, Jesus before he was met by him uh, and transformed by him. But we also see Paul's love for the Ephesian church by him bending down before God to kind of intercede and pray for the church to know this same love. William Barclay, a popular commentator, says Paul's prayer for the church is so intense that he prostrates himself before God in an agony of entreaty. You know, Paul isn't just content with the church simply knowing about the Father, simply knowing about God, but being able to kneel before him in an intimate and personal relationship. Because in the culture of that day, this would have been unheard of because Greco-Roman culture believed that the gods were distant, that they didn't care about their personal lives, that they were kind of this unknown person. Uh, they were The gods were capricious and angry at people, and the people kind of had to find and figure out and guess their way to kind of please the gods. But here, in the true religion that Paul is saying, God is depicted as father. And he pictures us, it's, there's pictures of us uh, gaining identity. That this is the first experience we have to exploring faith in Jesus. That he names us. That he calls us his own. That he adopts us into his family. You know, it makes me wonder if sometimes we're just content with the knowing about who God is without experiencing his love and power and presence in our life. Because this experiential knowledge uh, can be good. Like it can be satisfying for a moment, but I think we crave more than that. Um, and I think this exper experiential knowledge comes from us bowing before him in this muddled mixture of confidence and safety as our father and also holiness and honor as our Lord. But God today wants to give you and I an identity that isn't wrapped up in our job, that isn't at the core wrapped up in our relationship status, our family, our sexuality, our goodness, but instead wrapped up as his child. And I think Paul writes this before anything else because what we choose to be the core of our identity will determine how and from whom we receive love and worth from. That if our identity is wrapped up and what the world would have us believe we should be wrapped up in, we begin to misplace both the receiving of love, the giving of love, and also the understanding of where our worth lies. You know, even some of those things that seem good, um, that are in our lives, when it becomes the core of our identity, will cause us to eventually misplace our love and to misunderstand our worth. Well, you know at your parents' house, you have those like everyday dishes? where it's like the ones you pull out, they're from Ikea, you know, if you break them, they're like a dime a dozen. But then you have like the fine china where you like, you only take those out at holidays, particularly if like the grandparents are there. But then you kind of have those like dishes that are in between those two um, that are like for maybe guests coming over that are new, but it's just like a Tuesday night. It's not like a holiday. Um, but my mom had those, my mom had all of those. 
And she has had a set of blue glass dishes. At that time, it was the height of the 90s. Um, and those are like medium fancy dishes. They were like that kind of see-through blue um, glass. What a vintage moment. And one day when I was really young, I was about five years old, I was helping my dad by bringing the dishes from our kitchen table to the sink. And my little hands were so careful to bring the blue glass dishes very gingerly and very carefully to him because I knew that these were like our medium special dishes. And I was doing a pretty good job with my task. You know, I was, for my five-year-old self, I was doing a pretty good job, you know, the two hands on the, on the dish sort of thing until I dropped a glass. I dropped it on the floor and it shattered. And immense pieces of, of blue glass everywhere. I was so afraid in that moment about me getting in trouble that my dad was gonna be furious with me that I dropped one of their special cups. So I tried to quickly cover up my tracks. I tried to sweep it up, which proved to be a difficult task because of the, my sight was blurred by, by my rolling tears. And my dad came in the kitchen shortly after because he heard the noise. And I immediately started panicking and telling him I was sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, dad, I didn't mean to do this. And my dad bent down to my height. He took the broom and dustpan away from me and he looked at me. And I knew in that moment that I was really getting in trouble. But instead he looked at me on my level and he said, son, it's okay. It was a mistake. I'm not mad. And all of that fear, all of that panic, all that shame that my little five-year-old self felt, it melted away in that moment. And I realized my dad is not someone who's gonna condemn me when I make a mistake, but instead to restore me when I'm truly like repentant in that moment. Because in that moment as a child, my understanding of the love that I would receive and my worth was, was that I had to do things perfectly. And if I made a mistake, it would somehow degrade that. But when we replace the core of our identity with something other than us being a child of God, we will see God with the wrong perspective, just like I did with my earthly dad. And this will not cause us to bend our knee in adoration, but I think to cower and hide in shame. And I think this is why Paul starts off this prayer by saying we all share his name, which is our identity as an individual and also as a body of believers as well. And when we come to know our Heavenly Father, we are free to come before Him with our requests, with our failures, with our shame, and find someone who cares deeply for us. That we can come before Him with all of our mess, and He doesn't condemn us, but He says, it's okay. I love you. This is both our identity as individuals, but it's also identity as His church. That we are His family, collectively, in unity. And so this is like both a personal thing and a corporate thing. Paul's writing to the Ephesian church, not a person in Ephesus. And so a lot of this is a plural you. And so this is understanding that this is our personal identity and our corporate identity as his people and, and as our father. But I understand that for some of us, God as father is painful because some of us have a broken or hurting or conflicting relationship with our earthly fathers. Some of us have or had fathers who are absent and who never showed us that love and modeled that. Well, I wanna acknowledge the pain of that, but can I encourage you that when we look at God, we see the perfect picture of a redemptive perspective of what a father should be. Now, this may not immediately resolve your relationship with your earthly father, but it can redeem your concept of fatherhood as it's intended to be. So I want to acknowledge the pain that comes from sometimes calling God Father, 
but to encourage you that the true expression of Father is found in him. And we can see his perfect redemptive character in his word and the expression of what true fatherhood looks like in the expression of his love as we read on. Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power, with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Well, this is Paul's continued prayer for the church that we would be strengthened with power through the spirit so that Christ may dwell in our hearts. And this picture of, of being strengthened in our inner being is kind of complex, like it seems very simple. Um, and yet when we kind of understand the concept of self and inner being and all that, it, it paints a pretty beautiful picture. And while I could try to explain it, um, I want to pull from Roger Stronstad's words. Um, he was perhaps one of the most respected pneumatologists in our time. Uh, a pneumatologist is somebody who studies the Holy Spirit. Um, and so he writes this. He says, he prays that believers may be strengthened and renewed by the spirit in their inner being, their human spirit, so that Christ may reside as Lord in their hearts. In other words, their soul involving their mind, emotions, and will through faith. According to this interpretation, Christ resides actively as Lord of the heart or seat of the believer's selfhood and volitional activity as we are strengthened by God's empowering spirit in our innermost being. What a beautiful picture that in our like human spirit that we're strengthened so that Christ can reside as Lord in our hearts, our soul, our most like intimate parts of ourselves. And this requires strength and renewal because we live in a fallen and broken world. And our nature is to have something other than Jesus sit on the throne of our lives. It can be a myriad of things. I'm sure you could think of one. But God wants to do a work of renewal in each of us, not just to modify our behavior, but to strengthen and renew us by the Spirit from the inside out. That he actually changes our attitude and desire, our emotion and mind and will to those things. And that is the thing that changes our response. I think some of us maybe need some of that strength today by the Spirit. That you have been going at it yourself and you're feeling weak and you're feeling tired and you're feeling like you maybe come to the end of yourself that you've tried everything to find that source of strength and that you've come up short. But God's strength is for you today. It's for us actually together too, as we are his body and are more than the sum of our parts. When the spirit is working in and amongst us, this is why we need each other. Because when we are weak, we can lean on those who are strong in our community and be renewed by the spirit together. Because when we uh, make Christ Lord of our selfhood, and our willing activity, we find the strength to resist that which tries to command our identity so that we can continue to look more and more like him each day instead of looking more and more and more like the things of the world each day. But how does that actually like do, like how does that work practically? Well, I think Paul makes it quite clear by praying that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Now, Paul uses a specific Greek word and a specific verb tense for the word dwell in this passage to communicate very clearly what this looks like, and we lose it over uh, our translation here. But H.C. Mool says this about the word. The word Paul selected, ketoikane, uh, is a word made expressly to denote residence as against lodging, the abode of a master within his own home as against the turning aside for a night of the wayfarer who will be gone tomorrow. It is a residence always in the heart of its master and lord, who where he dwells, must rule, who enters not to cheer and soothe alone, but before all things else, 
terrain. You know, I'm really willing to let Christ dwell in me when I'm feeling weak or challenged or beat down, when I'm feeling discouraged or um, maybe like hurt. But am I just as willing to let Christ take up permanent residence in my life? This is the journey of holiness, that we allow him to be master and Lord over our lives in every season, not just when we need encouragement and soothing, which is important, and he does because he loves us and he's gracious, but he also wants to be the Lord of our life, to have that permanent dwelling in our lives at every season, even when it's good, even when we're doing all right, even when life seems to be going uh, well, that we make him Lord of our life, even in those times as well. And this takes a choice. This takes a choice to allow him to be master of our lives at all times. Now, we won't get it perfectly. That's not the point. Um, but I think that sometimes we can easily make God this cosmic genie where we only invite him into the parts that are hard or the parts where we like need something without allowing him to be Lord of our entire lives. And so this passage, I think, challenges me to take stock of if Jesus is a temporary wayfarer that leaves that I or that I cause to leave the next day in my heart or a permanent resident that lives there and rules there. Because allowing him permanent residence in the thing is the thing that allows us to be strengthened in our inner being consistently, not just in moments of like a blip in the radar here and there, but continued to be strengthened. Because allow us, it allows us to boast in our weakness because it's not about us anyways. We don't have to rely on ourselves and our own reserves within us, but Christ within us. Encountering God's love impacts us for a moment, but receiving God's love transforms us for a lifetime. And so do we receive him in our lives day by day as we look more and more like him? Or do we only have brief encounters with him when we need some, somebody or something to parachute into the chaos of our lives? Because when we allow him permanent residence, we see the outcome of this life of faith in the following verses. Let's read on in verses 17b to 19. Because this is where the passage reaches its summit. That each of these previous verses cascade as a result of each other kind of culminates here at the summit of Paul's prayer. And this is what it says. That you, plural, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Like I said, the passage in, or the you in this passage is plural. And that this is a prayer for us, us and not just me, that we together are rooted together and grounded in love for Jesus, which unifies us. And we're rooted and grounded in love for one another, which shows to the world whose we are. You know, I think one of the most tangible expressions of God's love to the world is through his church a group of diverse and different people who really have no business of getting along or even like being able to exist in the same space as each other, instead being unified and showing love that's sacrificial to one another. That is the power of Christ dwelling in our hearts, that it changes the way we view and love and care and fight for those around us. And this is the rooting and grounding that Paul is praying for. It's the thing that holds us and keeps us and, and stays us in those moments where it's tough. Friends, this is the hope of the church, that we would be rooted and grounded in Christ's love. And this is what actually what Jesus was trying to get at, uh, of our witness in John 13, 35. It says, I give you a new command, love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. 
By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Friends, we will only have this witness by allowing Jesus to reign in our inner being consistently, like Paul says, because you and I don't have it within us to do so. We don't have it within us to love everybody that comes our way. Instead, we do have a revelation and a consistent walk with the Spirit because He is the one that is able to accomplish this in us. And it speaks loudly to a world, especially to our world now that is divided and that's like self-cannibalizing and that's ready to tear each other apart and to dismiss each other and, and not be a, a, a people of second chances. And so I think this is so, this is why God's heart is so grieved when his body walks in disunity and dissension. Which isn't to say that we don't disagree or have different opinions or um, have moments of conflict, but it shows that how we walk those out together is what really matters. Because when we are rooted and grounded in love, we see that we see Jesus displays through us the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love, something that we can't even contain within ourselves because it's greater than us. And we can only love like this because he first loved us. A commentator uh, whose last name is Wood says, God's love is wide enough to reach the whole world and beyond. It is long enough to stretch from eternity to eternity. It is high enough to raise both Gentiles and Jews to heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It is deep enough to rescue people from sin's degradation and even from the grip of Satan himself. The love of Christ is a love he has for the church as a united body and for those who trust him as individuals. Now, when we understand this, the height and depth and breadth and width, it seems like it can almost feel like uh, incomprehensible or impossible to fully grasp. And that's actually exactly the point. Because to worship and to follow a God whose love is able to be fully comprehended by our finite minds is not a God who's worthy of our worship. But instead, the love of Jesus is four-dimensional. It is beyond our comprehension. And yet at the same time, by the Spirit, it can be intimately known and felt and filled within his people. Uh, a commentary, Life in the New Spirit, says, <clears throat> Uh, to know Christ's love experientially is to know Christ himself in ever-widening experience and to have his outgoing and self-denying love reproduced in oneself. And they're referring to, to F.F. Bruce here. That Paul is referring to an experiential knowledge of Christ's love is apparent in 319a, where he explains that it surpasses knowledge. Moreover, regardless of how much we know of Christ's love, there's always more to know because it is infinite and inexhaustible. Wow, infinite and inexhaustible. What an incredible picture of God that when we fail, when we succeed, when we hurt, when we are broken, when we are whole, it is still infinite and it is inexhaustible that you can never exhaust God's love for you. Because encountering God's love impacts us for a moment, but receiving God's love transforms us for a lifetime. This love transforms us for a lifetime because it extends beyond our finite lives, it extends before and after that. It extends beyond just an intellectual knowledge of God's love for us, where we like know it up here, but we don't know it here. It is experiential, it's filling, and it's sustaining through every single season. And you can never plumb to the depths of God's love for you. You can't outrun it, you can't go higher than it, you can't go far enough away from it, it will always be there. And so Paul doesn't just want the church to encounter God's love. 
but to live a life of receiving it and then modeling it as we look more and more like Jesus each day. The Center for Excellence in Preaching says, by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, those who have Christ dwelling in their hearts through faith can grasp the love of Christ in their experience. Then, and only then, can we be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. That last phrase surely cannot mean that we can contain God in ourselves, for that is impossible. The finite cannot contain the infinite any more than a teacup can contain the ocean. It must mean that God will fill us with the fullness he intended in the beginning, the full humanity that has been ruined by sin, the fullness of life Christ came to bring, the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. God's ultimate intent is to restore us all to the full glory of the image of God. And he does that by us grasping and, and, and taking hold of his love for us. You know, it's important for us to unpack God's word together. Uh, it's an act of worship. It's an act of discipleship, something that uh, God's people devote their lives to. It's part of our journey of faith. But the reality is I can speak to you until I'm blue in the face. Uh, I can speak for hours and hours, which I won't, about this topic, and I can get shouty like those pastors do. And to be honest, I found myself actually kind of challenged in writing this sermon because I couldn't find the words to like adequately convey the power of God's love for you and I. And um, as somebody who really appreciates words, I found this to be difficult and frustrating. So I had a bit of a stern conversation with God about it during my study. But as I took some time to pray, I realized that I will actually never be able to convey God's love in a message because it transcends far beyond my words could ever say and beyond any words I could ever drum up. Like Paul says, it goes beyond our intellectual acrobatics and it is a lifelong experiential revelation by the Holy Spirit. Well, some of us maybe have only encountered God's love, but today maybe you feel moved by the Spirit to move from just encountering God's love to actually receiving it. You know, the reality is I can never preach you into that reception of God's love. What we need is a revelation and a move of the Holy Spirit to unveil this incredible mystery to us. And so this is how I want us to just end our time today. Uh, I want you to just take some time to like wait on the Lord, to let him love us. That might feel kind of awkward or strange if you're like in your room or with your family, but can you just set a timer on your phone for maybe a couple of minutes to just sit there and to receive God's love for you? Because I think that that will bring a transformative experience. Whether you've done that never before and this is your first time, or you've done that a thousand times. Our journey of faith uh, doesn't mean that it diminishes our need for God's love. Um, and so I want to encourage you what you need to do, to do what you need to do to have a moment with God. To maybe take some time on your own, to go for a walk in nature, to listen to his voice, to just spend some time maybe in quiet in your room or your living room, and just to let him love you because that love will truly transform your life in words and ways that I can never explain, but only that the Spirit can reveal to you today. And so let's pray for that. God, we thank you that by your Spirit, we can know and receive and be transformed by your love. God, I pray that in this moment, as we take some time to just be silent before you, that you would reveal your love for us, that we would not just know it in our heads, but that we would experience it in our innermost being that we would know that it is inexhaustible and infinite. That every time we come back to you, there's a celebration because your love extends far beyond any failure we could have. And so God, I pray that as we take this moment 
to just be loved by you. That we would see this not as something selfish, but see this as something that's actually inherently selfless so that we can show that love to other people as well. God, we love you and we thank you that your love is for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.